by the way, the song was Def Clark. dig the new intro music i haven't made it to the outro stuff yet but i think the new intro music rules man good stuff and yeah i know jason was just giving you some grief about saying the wrong words for the you know skills or whatever and then that confusing him on what to see on the character sheet but that you know you should know what's on your character sheet so if a gm says roll perception you should know that perception isn't a thing in this game. It's called awareness instead. So, honestly, that's that's a player thing, man. Get it together, Jason. Peace out. Hey, Jason. I don't know if TJ Drennan would appreciate you comparing his composition to Death Clock. Um, maybe he'll listen and call in and uh, give an opinion. I know he's super busy, and I totally appreciate that he... Uh, compose these intros and outros for me i have another version too that i gotta mess with a little bit uh, but i'm excited um it's like a new phase in the podcast right so um and then here we go joe thank you for calling in this is like the joe versus jason show it's almost like a an addendum or a an appendix to what kevin from the red caps podcast is doing a joe session and adjacent session and here you have it in microcosm so yeah joe calls out jason on having him or calling him out to pay attention perception equals awareness they're synonyms apparently equal spot hidden they're synonyms apparently so yeah i mean i don't know i i get annoyed and frustrated sometimes with myself when i misuse the terms and then get flack for it maybe do i get annoyed because i get flack for it no, I get annoyed because I feel like it should be the same term all the way around. But uh, maybe uh, Joe is right in that, um, yeah, the player should realize that perception equals awareness equals spot hidden. Um, unless you have like mechanics like I remember 3.0 had like uh, listen also and then hide in shadows and move silently were separate. And now it's just stealth, um, right? That seems a, a better way of doing things maybe. And then, you know, now per perception is now, or used to be listen and, and spot hidden. And now it's just rolled into one, maybe. So, uh, yeah, words are important. Definitions are important. Like we learned yesterday, for example, and I'll give this recap later in the podcast that, uh, right, point blank means something different in Pathfinder 2 than it did in Pathfinder 1. So uh, here we go. I think... We're going to have Joe and Jason give a lot of comments, and I will respond, and then we will have um, a recap and an unboxing, even though Jason doesn't like them. But uh, welcome to the Geomologist Presents, and enjoy. Scratch that addendum. There will not be a recap of the Pathfinder 2nd Edition game where I, that I ran this past Wednesday until later. Jason and I are going to do a joint recap session, which should be kind of fun and interesting, and that'll be out later this weekend. But uh, there will be a recap, and it will be of our latest Warhammer Fantasy 
we'll play the fourth edition game. We're in Death on the Reich as part of the Enemy Within, and that should be towards the end. I think these first set of calls by Jason and Joe are about the idea of not getting XP just for monsters and what games in the past have done, uh, getting XP for social encounters and how to handle social encounters. So, uh, yeah, take it away, guys, and I'll comment after. You know, Carl, it's funny when you talk about non-combat solutions to encounters. The old editions, like, you were expected to do that in Dungeons & Dragons, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. When you look at some of those adventures, you have to play the factions off each other. You're not going to, well, I, I won't say you're not going to, but the chances of you going in some of those adventures and just going toe-to-toe with every creature in, in those dungeons and in the caves and caverns and stuff, it's unrealistic. You're going to play factions, you're going to make buddies, and really, aside from a really basic morale system, right, and reaction system, AD&D doesn't have social rules, and it doesn't need them. You don't need skills, you don't need narrative mechanics, you don't need any of that crap. You just role play. Now, I know some people prefer to have rules in there because they're not strong social skills, and I get that, and I understand that, and I'm not putting that down, but you really don't need those rules in a game because we never had them back in the day. So my preference is to have some kind of social mechanic, yes, because that way players that aren't as socially adept can still lay out their plan, what they want to do, then you can roll the dice and describe what happened. So I'm okay with that. I, I don't mind having social rules, but let's be honest, old games didn't have them, and we did plenty of social stuff in the old games. You know, maybe not every group did, but not every group was a mo- murder hobo group back in the day. There was a heck of a lot of role-playing in faction, playing one faction off the other and stuff like that back in the day with zero social rules built into the game. So it's doable. You don't, you don't need complex, crazy social rules. Um, just throwing that out there. I wonder where that changed, Jason. I definitely think there is a lost art to, for example, domain play. And that's why I love Kevin Crawford's uh, An Echo Resounding and Red Tides. He also does this in Stark Without Number, right? This idea of faction and domain play is heavily emphasized. And I remember in the end goal in AD&D, not so much basic. I think you kept going on in basic because they added expert and uh, the other things immortal super immortal demigod and all those box sets but um in AD&D right at ninth level you had your own domain or your own thieves guild or your own temple and I, I know that in some of the new newer rec clones that they've done that like in astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of hyperborea right ninth level is your name level and it's like the end game you have a domain and um Right, so you had to do that social stuff in order to play that out, but uh, somewhere along the line it changed from emphasizing the end game, which was domain play, potentially, and and just uh, a, a killing the, the biggest, baddest monster. I mean, I, I don't know. And... Um, yeah, it's be something worth examining and and seeing where that changed. And your other comment was on needing mechanics for 
social interaction. And yet it did, we didn't really need it in the earlier incarnations because it was very ad hoc, you know. Um, it, it didn't always happen. It was based on the reaction role or the morale, and then you kind of deal with that. And you didn't need a like a diplomacy skill. Um, maybe that was changed in a way when they introduced proficiencies into the game uh, from Unearthed Arcana on in AD&D. And then you had these people investing the time and money in these particular skills and not being glib of tongue. And people would default to rolling on those skills, proficiencies, to see if they succeeded in a diplomatic act or in a tea ceremony or whatever to influence the NPC that they were interacting with. So, yeah, I mean, um, I guess that's where it might have started. But um, I I think it, it you know cuts both ways, right? There are some people who are great at um, improvisation and being put on the spot and responding to what an NPC tells them or acts or says, but there's others who do not. And, and it's good to have that as a backup. It's good to explain to me what you're going to do and know you don't have to make a big, big long-winded speech like a Chaucer in A Knight's Tale or the Chaucer character in A Knight's Tale and uh, just to roll to see if you succeed, maybe with a bonus because of what you what you hit, what, you know, arguments you might have hit or not, uh, maybe with a minus because you really offended or what you, your plan might offend uh, the NPC, right? So I think mechanics are good. I believe that they're a guideline. I would like to hear what the players want to do first, and then let's try to adapt um, the rules if, they're, if they are there to what the reaction is. But I guess really if they give a good argument and they hit all the points and they there's no need to roll for it. Like you don't need to roll for clues that are germane to pushing forward an investigative type of scenario. You don't need rolls necessarily. If we hit the bullet points that we need to hit, and we do, you know, do the right or uh, propose the right cultural etiquette um, for the situation, and um, and then go from there to push the story forward. I think that's the biggest thing is don't make it a, a hindrance or a roadblock to the characters having fun or accomplishing the goal. And many players are goal-orientated, so why put a, a, a random roadblock in their path? Let's uh, roll with it, you know? Carl, it's Joe from Hindsightless. Uh, yeah, you're talking about Paizo Adventure Pass giving you XP for non-combat stuff, and absolutely, in Curse of the Crimson Throne, our group just, I mean, basically lost, we didn't lose XP, but we didn't get as much XP as we could have, because we started a fight in this one situation, and we would have actually gotten a bunch more XP if we would have just done the whole thing without fighting. So, yeah, they do do that. It's pretty sweet, man. Um, yeah, okay, back to the episode. Peace out. Yo, Carl, me again. This might surprise folks, maybe not, I don't know. But I like the idea of XP for gold. I think it's fun and cool, and, you know, it. like you said, it emphasizes different things. What I, I, what I don't get is how that works in the world you know like 
if you're getting XP for monsters, that makes sense because your character is like working and fighting and practicing their craft. But what does getting gold do for your player, for your character, like in the fiction? And I know that's probably not even part of it. I don't know. It's just something I think about sometimes. But like I said, I like the idea. I think it's cool. Peace out. Hey, Joe, you bring up some interesting points. That's pretty cool that you get more experience from solving an encounter with not by non-combat means than through combat. And, may, and I think that Paizo has done that for a long time in many of their adventures. I mean, Curse of the Crimson Throne was their second adventure path offering. So, you know, it was early on in their design schemes to do that, which I think is pretty cool. And to answer your other question, how does gold work in the fiction? I, I don't know. I think I recall that somewhere you had to spend gold in order to get the XP for it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that was in BX or something. I'll have to check that out. Maybe someone can answer that or I'll go look it up at some point and clarify. But the other thing is I think that the gold increases your wealth, increases your influence in the world. And remember, like in these early games, domain play was the goal, right? You wanted to get to become a lord and have a castle. So the accumulation of wealth is definitely part of your leveling up and becoming more influential. So that would make sense that, you know, you accumulate all this gold. Uh, you are seen by others as a more experienced person. You gain more power and influence through the use and spending of gold. So I think it could work, you know, just like hit points work, right? It is a, not a direct one-to-one uh, um, -one ratio of health, right? Hit points is kind of a vague term to show health and other things. So, you know, with a little bit of hand-waving, I think accumulation of wealth and gold as XP could work in the fiction, in my opinion. Hey, Carl, just want to mention that... Um yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't think it was anything you did wrong. I think that Twilight 2000, 4th edition is just clunky. Twilight 2000, 1st edition was clunky too. I, it just is what it is. I mean, if we used Operation White Box, it, it would run a lot smoother, I think. But whatever, it's all good. I'm happy with the game you're running. I'm happy with the, the setting and the story and all that. I, I was just expressing on my podcast that Personally, I would take all the setting stuff, the modules, all the cool stuff you're doing, and use a appropriate rule set for it. But it is all good. I am not leaving the game over the rules. You don't got to worry about that. So I will talk to you later. Keep up the great work. We just heard some more Jason. So, yeah, he's not happy with the rule set in the Twilight 2000 uh, 4th edition version. I, I don't know. I guess I don't feel it's as clunky as maybe it, I feel like if we were playing in person maybe a lot of things wouldn't be so clunky and I think it's just a familiarity on the part of some players with the rules or not and it's been two weeks and maybe it came across that way because my brain was still reeling from the events of the past weekend and uh, but I'm, you know the show must go on and we play and I, I mean, I talked to one of the players about it who plays in my Warhammer game. And he's like, no, he really liked the rules and he really got it. It felt intuitive to him. So so I don't know. I do have the white box and I've looked through it. And I feel there was an issue with it. That's why I wouldn't, I would 
wouldn't want to use it except for maybe some World War II themed games. Um, I got to look through it again, but I would not mind trying the white box out. Not for Twilight 2000. I think the rules honestly are fine. Um, there's a lot of granularity and minutia, and perhaps you don't like that, that there is like a module, modular set of rules for each type of subsystem, like vehicle combat, like travel. Um, we've tried to simplify some things, but maybe simplifying it has overcomplicated it. And I think they really do a good job of making all the units match, you know, like fuel consumption, like how much uh, distillables it takes to make fuel, um, food. It's all done in like units of some sort um, that are not necessarily, it's not like in, uh, uh, it's not in like measurements, right? not like kilograms or or pounds it's units right so i think that simplifies things for the consumables and consumption of, of goods water food fuel um, ammunition players keep track of themselves and i know we're it might also be feel a little complicated because now we have like this convoy of people um a lot of them aren't as yet unnamed right we have all these like uh, nameless uh ex-us soldiers who are helping out with various tasks. So yeah, I think it's, um, I need to codify that more and maybe it'll feel more real and more smooth uh, when we do that. So, you know, I blame myself for the feeling of clunkiness. I don't think the system is as clunky as it needs to be um, or it can be. I mean, even if, if drawing cards kind of breaks the flow of action, rolling a D10 dice is just as adequate, right? So that could be a possibility as well. Anyway, um, yeah, I will talk to you all soon or no, I don't know what I'm saying right now. Um, no, I will not talk to you all soon. Actually, the next call is from Joe Richter. Yo, Carl. So I absolutely hate the people that lived across the street from you. Declawing a cat is just such a shit move. Those people suck. I hope their new house is infested with bed bugs. Uh, and, <laughs> dude, you should probably run City of Cats now. I love that your cat knocked down City of Cats. That makes me really happy. And he's got a cute meow, and he sounds awesome. Bye. Hey, Joe. I guess I got to add that to the big list, right? I mean, it's D&D &D 5e, so, you know, Jason won't play. Maybe you'll play. I don't know if you play D&D &D 5e. I know I can get D&D &D 5e players in my home group because we play that a lot or we played it a lot. So, um, so yeah, um, that's Preacher and Preacher wants me to play City of Cats. Maybe he was attracted to the, you know, the goddess who is the patron of that city, uh, Bast or Bastet or whatever uh, their name is in that particular universe. So pretty cool. And um, yeah, thanks for all the call-ins. Joe and Jason, I'm sure your feud will continue in the cloud. Hey all, I'm going to do an unboxing despite Jason Connerly not liking them. You can skip it, I guess. So I have a box. It is a media mailbox. It's got some heft to it. And it is from the History Book Club, so it probably is not any um, gaming material. 
but what books would I have ordered from the History Book Club? I got two books in here. Pretty cool, pretty cool. Two books that are sort of up my alley, military history and that of the Old West. So I got um, Oath of Office, Lawmen of the Wild West by Terry C. Treadwell. So it talks about a lot of different um, lawmen of the West. So from Robert Forsyth to Isaac Parker, James Butler Hickok, Ben Thompson, and Wild Earp, among others. How many more are there? Let me look at the table of contents. Oh gosh, there's a ton, which is awesome. There's like 23 chapters so far on the first content page. 36 chapters, actually, which is pretty cool. So 36 different tales of lawmen, and it's a pretty hefty book. Um, it's got that, like, nine-point, lovely nine-point font, about 223 pages, lots of pictures. Um, so it gives, like, a little several pages on a particular pass. I Pat Garrett's in there. Um, kind of cool. So looking forward to this for my Wild West game research, or just because I like the Old West. The other book I got is, I'm surprised I do not have one. I have one I feel like for every single war, but World War I, the World War I Illustrated Atlas, Campaigns and Battles from 1914 to 1918. There's some cool products that I know I have, either in print or as PDF, that talks about the background to the war. I think I kind of was in, interested in it after watching the uh, Freud uh, series on Netflix because kind of, the stuff that happens there in Austria is almost a setup for what's going to happen later or how World War I gets started. A lot of awesome looking maps of the different campaigns. They even have a U-boat campaign thing. The Battle of Jutland uh, looks pretty cool, actually. looks very cool. So I'm pretty excited about this. It's a very comprehensive atlas. It uh, rates in at 180-something pages. And it's, you know, it's a, a bigger book. It's not your standard book size. It's a little bigger book and it has plenty of illustrations and you know those diagrams with the red and red and blue blocks that show different uh, forces so i'm pretty excited about it all right that's my unboxing history books jason and now to the meat of this podcast a recap of our warhammer fantasy fourth edition game we are playing through the enemy within we're on the second book death on the reich and the players uh, had traveled from bogenhafen where they staved off a demonic incursion from this cult and have traveled on to weissenbrook which is a town up the river or yeah down the river actually it's down river and here from weissenbrook they will take the canal up towards Altorf to then get on the Reich itself and then travel upriver, presumably to um, Grissenwald, where they're going to confront uh, this other cultist um, or group that they saw in this note. So they're fighting this cult group called the Purple Hand that they've known about. One of the numbers in the party is a doppelganger for someone who was a big deal in the Purple Hand. And in Weissenbrook, he keeps seeing these people motion to him and and he repeats the motions or whatever. 
which is kind of interesting. So anyway, uh, when we last left the players, they were in Weissenbrook and they had tried to track down their friend who they met at Schaffenfest and the apothecary Elvira. They had found Elvira's niece hidden in the cellar and she said that Elvira had been kidnapped. So um, they had uh, some clues. So the, the players who found this out went back to the boat uh, that they've called the Endurance um, that they found in a salvage after a fight with some mutants. And um, they decided that they were going to go to the Happy Man, which was one of the clues at the bar in town. Uh, they look around, they ask around. There, No one knows anything about Red Barns, which is another clue they got. So they go to the Happy Man, which is their lead. Uh, they learn some rumors and gossip about strange things happening a noble being killed in the Grey Mountains, uh, Karl Franz, the emperor, taking ill, uh, his son also not being seen, and there are rumors all in and around uh, what's going on, um, which is part and parcel of this game. There's like a there's like rumor mills that generate when they m move around town and make a gossip check. Uh, they get to roll on some rumor tables, which is fun, and they could be red herrings for the players or part of the overall story. Uh, they don't know. Uh, definitely, this is a very interesting study, and what the players, um, what the players, when you give them clues or tell them things, what the players latch onto, and whether or not this could be a diversion or or not, they actually don't know. I guess I've been pretty good and um, held things close to the vest, whether this thing is important to the overall story or not. For example, the box in which they found the little demon worm to which Imric, the mage, has left suddenly from the group, taking that box with him and a book full of chaos, full of chaos spells, apparently. Um, so they don't know if that's important or not, what's going to happen with Imric. Um, I mean, in real life, that character just couldn't play anymore, but uh, they are still latching on to this fiction that that wor demon worm is important, as is the book, and they may or may not be, which is part of the fun, I think. And it gives it more a feel, even though they're playing through an adventure and they have a goal in mind to stop this cult from reaching its fingers into their wonderful empire. Um, There's still other things that can happen and they can go in different directions and get to places in different ways. And that's, again, part of the fun. So they go to this happy man. They put on a great show um, through use of charm and entertainment. They find the clue that they need to find. They find that the person who takes care of the the restrooms, well, you know, the outhouse, sees a lot and knows a lot. So they give him a lot of, they give him a, right? So the economy is very interesting, right? You know, the difference between a peasant who makes brass coins in a month versus a noble who makes gold hand and fist is is geometric if not exponential, right? So, you know, one brass penny equals, or 240 brass pennies equals a gold crown. And in a year, a peasant might see 50 brass pennies, if that. So, you know, it's very interesting how the economy works. And I like it, it's realistic. You know, when you, when you get to the gold level, you are getting in the wealth and the characters have a lot of gold uh, through various circumstances. But that's what players do. The fun thing is that they can now invest in things. For example, um, they're starting a little trade company. Um, 
uh, out of their boat. And so far they, and in this here in Weisenberg, they bought a bunch of vegetables cheap and are going to take them to the big city. That was kind of a little side trek in a way, which the player who owns the boat is getting excited about. So they want to do some river trucking, right? Which I like. Um, so at the Happy Man, they find out what they need to find from this auto who takes care of the, right, who's the pot boy. I think that's what they call him, pot boy, chamber pot man. And uh, he tells them that these three people, one of who, which is very distinct, um, a tall, hairy Tilean man uh, took this hand cart that had a bundle uh, in this direction. So they follow that direction, which is to the north and across the canal. They find a set of buildings, one of which is a red barn, which was one of the clues. So they go up to there. They don't sneak up great, but I rolled worse than them on my perception for the NPC. And they're like, even though they kind of messed that up, the approach, the NPC is deep into sleep. They even hear snoring from the other side of the door. The doors are wedged. They decide to try to figure another way into the barn. And they come up with this plan where they're going to, with a grappling hook, latch on to the bar that's usually a, a, you know, above a hayloft to help you get hay up into the barn. Um, and then have their draft horse pull open the door, uh, which works really well. Um, and the one of the players, the person who... Uh, the knight, the elven knight, um, is already up there when the door is open, but it makes enough noise that it wakes up other the other kidnappers that are on the top level. So there's a total of three kidnappers who have kidnapped uh, this Elvira, the apothecary, and there's two up there also asleep guarding them, guarding her, and then one on the ground floor. Uh, so a big a melee ensues, and it's it's, it's somewhat of a comical melee, there's some wrestling involved and grappling. Um, the Elven Knight ends up being tack, you know, tackled to the ground, but gains control of the wrestle and uh, effectively dislocates the man's shoulder, uh, which causes him to pass out. Um, on the ground floor, uh, one of the player characters, who is uh, Reginald, who was once an advisor and is now a duelist, uh, shoulders his way into the into the bottom floor, wakes up the, uh, the guard down there. Um, and that guard uh, get and then, uh, Sebastian is backing him up. Sebastian is a lawyer, but can use a bow relatively effectively and tags the man as he wakes up, um, you know, lacing some a wound across his arm with, uh, with his arrow. But then, uh, in the next few seconds, Reginald leaps onto the hand cart and stabs down at the man felling him um, with a blade to the underneath or through the shoulder and into the vitals. So that man is dispatched. Meanwhile, up top, they're still wrestling. The third thug is a woman and she has a knife. She doesn't know what to do. because She wasn't expecting resistance or pursuit because um, Elvira doesn't have any friends in town. And these guys that she met at Schaffenfest are kind of like her friends. So, uh, she doesn't know what to do. She hesitates. Eventually, she stabs onto Ulrich, who has joined the big wrestling melee. Um, then Ulrich and her get into this entangling wrestling match. By the time the others go up there, Sebastian grabs her, um, and Ulrich pins this woman down, and Reginald uh, releases Elvira. 
Elvira uh, asks for a knife or finds a knife on the ground and proceeds to stab the hell out of the Talayan mercenary who the elven knight Morastra um, had knocked unconscious or pulled his arm out and he fell into shock and unconsciousness. And she proceeds to stab him multiple times until he's like uh, dead. So, and then they interrogate them somewhat. They interrogate the woman and she says that she was hired by someone in Altorf to kidnap Elvira. Um, Elvira is very, um, she hides what the reason is. And before a reason can be given other than for money, um, Elvira reaches into her, her apothecary item, coats her dagger with something, and then proceeds to slice the woman across the face, and she dies a horrific death from poison, um, frothing at the mouth, etc. Uh, the characters don't really question Elvira. She's been through some trauma, clearly, so they leave her alone with it. And she offers, well, you know, if you want to train an apothecariness or whatever, I can help you. Now the players decide to, which is okay. Uh, they kind of want to get out of out of Weisenbrook. They try to convince Elvira and to take her niece and go with him on the boat, but she declines, and uh, the players move on. So they get to Altorf. Um, without incident, they find some more rumors, and a couple things occur in Altorf, and then we kind of stopped at that location. One, uh, Reginald, um, who had previously stabbed and sliced off, nearly sliced off the penis of a nobleman. Um, well, that nobleman subsequently died. They had heard that in a rumor before. So Reginald is a wanted person. They see wanted posters of Reginald and there's a 10 gold piece reward, gold crown reward for him. Uh, they catch a person grabbing the wanted poster and trying to maybe run away. Um, they, they find the poster, take it from him and then let him go. Um, later, uh, a group of six men from the watch come to the boat. Uh, actually, Reginald had kind of run back to the boat to hide in it, and they're allowed to search the boat, but Reginald was able to hide from them um, in the, you know, it's a, it's a barge and it has grain shipment and other cargo, and he's able to hide amongst the cargo. Um, but they do find out that uh, they were betrayed. The person who told them about the boat and where Reginald was was none other than Uncle Joseph of the Barabelli. So um, so they're kind of pissed off about that. Reginald definitely is. Ulrich is upset that his uncle would betray him for 10 gold crowns um, or whatever. Who knows what the, the actual reasoning. Uncle Joseph was known to get into his cups. Maybe he just sort of thought it as a whim. Maybe he was upset that his nephew had left him to start his own boat and his own shipping company. Um, even though Yosef probably makes a lot of money, you know, trucking and wine and stuff. But anyway, that's what happened. And then the other interesting thing that happened is Marastra is watching all this happen from a, a nearby tavern, finally getting some good, something good to drink in the big city, as opposed to the watered down stuff that he gets everywhere else. And he sees a man with a purple scarf eyeing the group. He goes, he sneaks up on him and uh, confronts him, drags him to the alley the man tries to escape, and then um, Marastra puts him in a headlock, gives him the sleeper, um, and drags him to the boat. 
and then they come up with a brilliant plan, and this will be really fun to see how it works out. They found out this man is supposed to be watching the doppelganger and reporting to his uh, superiors, and now they're going to use him forcibly as a double agent to give false reports. So it should be fun when we pick up uh, just one big crazy melee in the, at the beginning of the adventure, but uh, we made some progress. And now they're going to travel upriver uh, towards uh, another big city, uh, Kempen Band, I think, on their way to Grisenwald. So it should be pretty cool when we pick up. Probably in a month, since I have to travel later this month, and we will miss that next session. But uh, anyway, that is our latest, latest escapades in our Enemy Within campaign, Death on the Reich. Dude, the outro music is cool, too. Uh, TJ is just an animal, man. Uh, way to go on getting some TJ Drennan intro and outro music, dude. It's been fun sending you messages while I listen to your show. <laughs> anyway, dude, do what you want with this whole bunch of nonsense, man. <laughs> yeah, I'll talk to you later. Peace out.